Here at the Alan Turing Institute, our mission is to make great leaps in data science and artificial intelligence research in order to change the world for the better. This podcast explores the research, ideas and technologies behind a data revolution with the people responsible for shaping our future. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. and welcome to another episode of the Turing Podcast. Today we're speaking to Robert Foley, who is a professor of human evolution at the University of Cambridge, as well as being a fellow of the Alan Turing Institute. Today we'll be discussing his work with the Turing in paleoanalytics, which involves applying data science and machine learning methods to human evolutionary studies. Robert, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, and um, before we jump into your research with the uh, Alan Turing Institute, um, can you tell us a bit about your background? Uh, how did you come to be where you are now and how has the field of human evolution changed during your career? Oh, <laughs> massively, because it's been a long career. Um, so I, I actually started life in, in archaeology. Uh, I, I, I read archaeology and anthropology at Cambridge, um, but became more and more interested in ecology and devolution. So very early in my career, I moved more into the biological sciences, and I was a lecturer in, in Durham, and then I moved back to Cambridge, where I've been now for, for 30, 35 years. Um, and my particular interests have always really been, I suppose, in two things. One is trying to really ask the question, you know, how and why did humans evolve, um, and applying general evolutionary principles. I think there's often been a, a view that humans are special, so they must have evolved through special means and special mechanisms. Um, and, and what I've always been interested in just trying to do is find general evolutionary models and apply those. And that led me particularly to, to, to think strongly about ecology. And then the second aspect is I, partly because I think my background was more in archaeology than in, in anatomy, which is where most of, of my colleagues tend to come from, is I'm very interested in behavior. You know, how did human evolution behavior evolve? Because, you know, while the, the lumps and bumps on skulls are very interesting, they're not really what makes us human. I mean, what makes us human is you know, how we think and how we act and, and, and behave. So I've tried to work on that. And that's led me in many directions. I've done a lot of field work in, in East Africa. I've done uh, field work in other areas, such as the Solomon Islands. Uh, but it's also led me... I suppose really away from classic paleontology into a whole range of subjects um, because I got quite, really quite interested in, in biology, evolutionary ecology, uh, and, and behavioral science and cognitive science. Um, so it's a, and that, I suppose what that boils down to is that in the course of my career, human evolution studies has just become multidisciplinary. So what started off as a as the domain of professors of anatomy has now become full of cognitive scientists and uh, archaeologists and, and, and 
bioinformatics and particularly genetics. Right. I have a little bit of a side question, which is based on that, which is um, what does a like a typical uh, field trip in in your area to the Solomon Islands actually include? Because I remember, but you know, back when I was in my undergraduate days, I, I chose to study biology on on the basis of the particular university I went to had a marine biology field trip to uh, Indonesia, <laughs> where we where we got to go in the coral reefs and do scuba diving and stuff, and and you know that was you know science in quotation marks. Um, but <laughs> I'm guessing, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, that if you're not looking at coral, if you're looking at uh, human <laughs> stuff, so what what would you get up to on a on a on a trip? So, so the, the the work in the Solomon Islands, which was done quite a long time ago with with Martin Mirazan Lara, and um, it was different from the work we mostly do in Africa, in that we were we were really interested in uh, looking at the living pe- population, the living people, and the question there was was, was this one. Uh, we were just beginning to explore and get an idea about human genetic diversity. This was in the early 2000s, and people came out of Africa and so on. Uh, but what there had been very little work on is how genetic diversity related to uh, what you could think of as the, the natural boundaries of human society. So you could say, um, if you've got you know a particular pattern of genetic diversity, how does it relate relate to linguistic diversity? So what we were very interested in doing there is to go and say, well, okay, let's look at the genes and see how they are spread, and then look at the languages and the language boundaries and see whether you know the genes and the boundary genetic boundaries and the language boundaries coincide. And uh, since then, a lot of work has been done in this area by others others than ourselves. And the answer, of course, is sometimes yes and sometimes no. But that becomes a really interesting thing, and it comes back to the behavior. You know, you might say, I think there's often a sense that human evolutionary biology, we think that it's it's all about the genes determining things. And, of course, the, the, in this case, it's the other way around, that languages often determine who you mate with, oh, really? who your partners are. So the genes follow the cultures. So it's, it's the inverse of what a lot of people often thought mm, about, about social yeah. Darwinism and so on. And that's what we were really interested in. It was, I mean, it was, a, it was quite, quite a difficult area to work because you've got these little islands and you, you bounce you know, on, these, on these, in my view, terribly dangerous little boats and get, go from island to island. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it's an extraordinary experience. I mean, you live in, in entirely different conditions from those you might expect any, anywhere else and you meet... Uh, in our case, people who were extraordinarily hospitable with their time and their, their, the information right. they, they gave us. Uh, so that was really quite an experience. I, th- I think that's quite a good point that to think about how... Sorry, I really like this tangent. <laughs> but we're thinking about how language actually influences. And we don't need to go to you know a remote island to see that. Even just in Europe, uh, it happens with all the languages that we have. So I suppose it's a logical which could be quite easy to see yeah. but then it was like yeah it makes sense it's it, it's a really interesting it's a really interesting point that like the language barrier itself could act as a, a thing that separates populations from a you know reproductive point of view you know think in like i'm remembering from my own um you know biology degree and stuff the way the way you would think about how animal populations speciate, so going from one species into multiple over time, is there would be some kind of barrier, normally a geographical barrier, 
that would separate one population from another and they would become isolated and over many generations they would, you know, become reproductively isolated. But it's interesting to think that language differences could have the same effect in humans. Yeah, I, I think they can. And they're not just language. I mean, it can be you know, the, the way you dress. It could be things that you can take on and off. Uh, and, and of course, I mean, what is the case with, with all live living humans and probably humans going back you know, for, for tens of thousands of years uh, is that there's no evidence of anything like speciation. So what that really means is that these these things act to damp down gene flow, but they don't act as a real barrier because you always have people you know, going across uh, language, bar- language barriers and reproducing. I mean, it could be the rebellious girl or the rebellious boy deciding that they're going to, you know, marry somebody that they've fallen desperately in love with in, in a different language group. Or it could be something more systematic than that. Um, uh, it, it could be that there is actually exchange of partners. And then there's the other side of it, which, which we see historically in, in the other area, the area I work mostly, which is East Africa, where you get a lot of raiding among groups, and they raid, and one of the things they will take are women. So the, so the women are going back and they're, they're having their reproductive lifespan in a different group. So the idea that, we're, that, that human genetic variation is neatly partitioned in this, this way is not, it's not right. So the result is that you know, we can look back in deep time and we see relationships between genes and languages. But when you look at the micro-mechanisms, it, it's a much, much more subtle pattern than, than, than that. Um, and, uh, and, and you know, I, I think it's, you know, human diversity is an incredibly complicated field, but it's that interplay that makes it so interesting and, and, and so impossible to pin down in some of the very lo- sort of loose categories that the that we see a lot in the press, for example. Right, right, yeah. Um, and I, I was um, wondering as well, because you mentioned earlier that um, obviously the, the thing that's changed the field dramatically over the last decade or couple of decades has been um, genetics. So what has been, um, you know, the big impact of our understanding of human uh, evolution since uh, genetics and genomics has you know been the primary way in which you would now research it. It's, it's massive, and of course, in a way, a great disappointment to me because I never really paid attention to genetics lectures when I was an undergraduate. So, the, 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 the impact haven't we you... all? <laughs> well, it wasn't very interesting then. It was all you know, fruit flies and, and so on. But now it's fascinating. So it's been massive. And, and... Actually, fruit flies is your specialisation, isn't it, B? Yeah, my PhD was with fruit flies. Actually, fruit flies are tremendously exciting and interesting. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay, because if I remember correctly, you spent a lot of time actually killing the fruit flies. Yes, and uh, I'm not working with them anymore, so (laughs) So we can can stay between us. So the fruit flies are probably very pleased about that then. Um, So... So yes, it had an impact, and I'll, I'll sort of split it up into two bits. I mean, one is just when people started being able to do, you know, genetic sequencing and, and, and be able to identify within species variation relatively easily. And, and the, the, the big impact of that was, of course, the, you know, what we, we, we now think of as the out-of-Africa model of, of modern human evolution. So, 
paleontologists had already begun thinking that it was likely that modern humans evolved in Africa, but it was a rather vague notion. And then along came Alan Wilson and his students and, and, did, and, and, and showed diversity in the mitochondrial genome, showing very clearly that most of the diversity is African. So Eurasian genetic diversity, and this is true mitochondrial and elsewhere, is, uh, is a subset of African variation. And, and that's a, you know, there's so many things that come out of that, that knowledge. It comes that humans have a much deeper history in Africa than elsewhere, that uh, African diversity is, is extraordinary. So you can have two villages in, in West Africa that are more distant from each other genetically than you and, you and I are from, um, from Chinese. So this, this changes the way we think about things. But the other perhaps, perhaps more important thing is how little variation there is. Humans are not a diverse, genetically diverse species, which is a surprise because phenotypically we think we are. And, and, and what that means is that there's been very little time for genetic diversity to accumulate. And that, going back to what we were talking about earlier, is one of the reasons why there's no hard and fast racial groups or long, deep lineages. There's, there are deep patterns, but uh, gene flow has been a, an important part of it. And we're, we're actually peas in a pod. Um, genetically speaking. Right. And yeah, I, think, I guess so, that comes back to there's no reproductively isolated human groups. We're all very much exactly. part of the same species. Yeah. We are. I mean, there's, you know, don't, don't, don't get me wrong, there's clearly variation and it's, it's geographically significant. And, and we know the history that, you know, our, we all go back to an ancestral population in Africa, what, two or three hundred thousand years ago, perhaps a bit more. And and we were in Africa then for until about 70,000 years ago, mostly. And then you get the big dispersals into Eurasia. So all, the, all that diversity we see in Eurasia is very, very young. And of course, it's people, we all we read stories as children about the great sweeping of, of groups across the Eurasian steppes and so on. And that's, that's what's shaped us, is this history of patterns of dispersal of, and a kind of ebb and flow of isolation. People get different and then they, 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 the isolation goes, population disperses, admixture, extinction occurs, all these things are happening. So I think, you know, I, I said there are two elements in that. Just that discovery, which is really the, the out of Africa story, uh, we'd never ever have got without genetics. And then the second element of it is, is the ancient DNA. So when people started getting, um, being able to get DNA directly out of fossils, uh, this was a, a real game changer. It took a long time to happen. The first results were, were, were sketchy, highly subject to contamination and so on. But eventually, and, you know, now it, it, it works. And that's really, and that's really showed us a, 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 a whole new insight. Firstly, it's given us much more depth into that pattern of diversity that I talked about, so we can see in much more, much more clearly. But the other thing is, it's, is, it, is it has, as far as we can tell, and not everybody accepts this, that, um, for example, uh, humans, as they came out of Africa 60,000 years or so ago, uh, interbred with Neanderthals, which we think of as a separate species. And Neanderthals and our ancestors have probably been separate for more than half a million years. 
So you can imagine the surprise of a Neanderthal sitting in Eurasia, and suddenly in come these you know tall, tall, thin African populations, uh, and you know they 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 interbred. Not very much, probably, um, but enough to leave a trace behind. And of course, that again tells makes you ask all sorts of questions about well, what sort of behaviours were involved? You know, they can't have speak, spoken the same language. Uh, was this uh, you know, a mutually satisfactory experience or something more more um, rapacious? Uh, it, Genes seem to go from Neanderthals into modern humans. We don't find many genes going from modern humans into Neanderthals. It's a bit of a one-way traffic. Um, well, those the ancient DNA samples that we have Neanderthals. I mean, how many of them do we have, or is is there enough to be able to know there, that? There's quite a lot now. I mean, it's. I mean, you're right. I mean, I, I'll I will mention a number. And of course, in, in the Alan Turing Institute, you know, where data science and any number less than several billion is small. Um, you know, I'm talking. We're talking probably now fifty or fifty or so Neanderthal um, samples that, that more, of, of more or less quality. So we're learning that. And then the other insights that come is we can look at the, the genetic structures, and we can say something about whether they were uh, very inbred. For example, Siberian Neanderthals appear to have been very inbred. Uh, their own diversity, and begin to start thinking about functional adaptations. Function, you know, what are the genes? And you see a lot of things saying that you know, it's the Neanderthal genes that give us immunity against this disease, or or, or, or reduce that. And that's emerging. I, I think I'm a little bit sceptical about how much of that I uh, I think we understand. Given we don't understand a great deal about a lot of uh, functional genes in, in in living people. But that has, that genetics has really transformed the way we do it, and, and it changes at a, a rate uh, which which I think also has revolutionised the the way the rest of us have to think about things. Yeah, it certainly um, yeah has big you know impacts on the way we think about human culture and and global politics and history and so on to understand. A lot of what was going on in prehistoric times uh, through human migration that I guess otherwise would have been lost to history, especially if it was occurring before recorded history. You're absolutely right, and you asked me at the very beginning you know, how things have changed. Well, if you told me when I was an undergraduate that we would be calculating, you know, the group sizes of you know an extinct species of hominid. Uh, I would have said no way, let alone being able to tell, you know, its skin colour from the basis of genes. So it it really has had a massive effect and, and, and um, on the way, on what we know and also the way we think about human evolution. I have a side question because, I'm sorry, this is a very side question, but regarding evolution, do, how do you find um, the perspectives that people have for evolution in in for non-human evolution so like for example that there is nothing particular particularly special about us but maybe we developed language before we humans developed language before other species and that's the special element um or do you think it is um a more special uh, <laughs> like tr journey. So, um, 
I mean, in a way, I mean, that is the, I think, being modest, you call it a side question, because it's probably, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the, the rupture that runs through so much of, uh, of, of the whole of humanity's idea about what it means to be human. And on the one side, you know, you have the, those who think that, you know, we look at chimpanzees, for example, and, and they're just one step away from writing the works of Shakespeare, and the, you know, the, the continuity is very there. And on the others who see, say, for example, language as this great chasm that, 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 that divides humans from, from the rest of the animal world. Um, uh, I'll say a couple of things. I mean, one is I, I think I like to distinguish between um, whether we are uh, very unique um, from um, from the question of how we got that uniqueness. So, you know, you talk to primatologists, people who study chimpanzees, and they tend to see a very narrow gap between humans and apes. And then the other people who say, no, there's a very wide gap. It's a, I think I tend towards the, it's a pretty wide gap, and I'll come back to that in a, in a second. Uh, but I don't think there's anything special about the way that gap happened. In other words, it's ordinary mechanisms of natural selection that are changing this whole um, this whole process. Donkeys years ago, I wrote a book called Another Unique Species, in which the point of it was that you know humans are unique, but all species are unique. And what's interesting is how they how that uniqueness, that adaptive uniqueness, evolves. So I think um, it, it, to my mind, you know. The, the challenge or the way I would do it is say, let's just assume everything happens just as it would have done for your Drosophila until it's proved differently. And the causes of the differences might well be relatively small. So in other words, what you need to have language might be relatively small. The consequences can, of course, be enormous. The consequences, in a sense, lead to massive population densities, overpopulation, climate change, all the things we're having to, to deal with now. So that the, there's that um, is that the, the, that takes place, and also on, on a positive note, just you know, all of the wonders of modern civilization. <laughs> a- absolutely, let's not let, let's not. I was going to say climate change, but I'm glad you took it to the <laughs> no, <it's> a, <laughs> to the positive. No, it, it's absolutely right. I mean, we, you know, one can spend a lot of time thinking of how you know the, the development of human society has been has led to the ecological crisis and we're living through the pandemic at the moment and everything you know, is, is, is a bit dark. Um, but you're absolutely right. We, 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 have, we have music, we have language, we have poetry, we have that, we have medicine. We just, you know, just think and we neglect so much to think what the rate of infant mortality was even a hundred years ago and look at what it is now. So, um, so yes, no, I'm, 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 I think... You've reminded me rightly that ultimately I'm a human optimist in this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're you're definitely in, in good company here. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's an interesting point. Um, I, I I do want to get to a question about the research you've been doing at Turing in a moment, but I think I will go for one more. Um, well, it just um, it strikes me as interesting that yeah we we see this as somewhat unique. Um, the fact that humans evolved and we're really intelligent and we can do these things that other animals can't do um but then at the same time like there are probably quite a few other animals that have like relatively advanced language whether it's whale species or perhaps other primates and so on um and then you you know going back through the hundreds of millions of years of time 
seems you know certainly possible that other um spe- you know intelligent species would have you know ar- arisen and and just went extinct for one reason or another just like a lot of other animals have done so um so the uniqueness in itself is i would argue somewhat in question um we just don't know because we can only work with what we've got here and what we happen to find in the fossil record yeah i think i think you're pushing your luck a bit if you want to argue that this kind of lost civilizations of Atlantis in the Cretaceous and, well, and so yes, on. But, yeah. but, but, but um, I'll take a kind of slimmed down version of what you're saying and say that, that clearly intelligence has uh, evolved many times independently. And we know, I mean, so you're absolutely right. So, you know, if you go back to the last common ancestor of, of us and whales, it's not that that was a smart creature and then they, we both developed it. They independently evolved intelligence, uh, as indeed have the cephalopods. I mean, and and the, the, each one is different. And look at parrots. So you know, each lineage has produced their kind of genius species, the ones that are very, very clever, or, or groups of species. But I don't think, uh, I don't think any, I mean, none of them have, have really reached the uh, the point where they've taken off. Let us say so that, for example, they are global, or that they have had such an impact on on the environment, or that in a way they they have created their own environments. And, you know, in a sense, we've created up, we're constantly creating our own new ecological niches. And I don't think any any lineage has has done that. So in that sense, uh, we are kind of uniquely unique. But other 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 species are are clearly doing that now. If we were to be wiped off the planet, uh, would another, would anything else come along and just evolve the intelligence? Yeah. So you've also got to consider that uh, our technological prowess has only come into fruition in the last, you know, depending on how you're counting, either the last last two hundred to five hundred years or the last ten thousand years. And then, as you mentioned, there were, you know, hundreds of thousands of years before that where we were meeting up with Neanderthals and possibly breeding with them and, uh, well, definitely breeding with them. Definitely breeding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're definitely breeding. Well, yes, yes, I, I suppose so. I, I think, yes, I, I, I mean, you touch a nerve there with me because I think that, that, that our, our deep ancestors, the ones hundreds of thousands of years ago, were technologically very proficient. Um, and, I mean, that, that does touch on what, 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 what the work we're doing with, with the Turing. Um I mean, certainly the, the the rate of technological change has kind of gone on, and, and clearly it's kind of ratchet effect that that, that 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 is absolutely the case. But I think technological capacity, potential capabilities, uh, go back go back really quite deeply into our into our ancestry, um, and played a big part in in how and why how and why we evolved. I think that that would certainly be be my view. Um, I mean, going back to your question, of course, it's an interesting point as to whether the fact that we have evolved kind of brought to a stop uh, the evolution of intelligence in other lineages. Uh, it's probably too short a time scale to really answer that question properly. Um, but, you know, if you take an ecological approach, you know, you know we have filled the, the smart niche. Uh, so anything else is going to come along and fill it. Uh, and that could be a robot, of course. Uh, is um, it has to has to outcompete us in that in that niche. So I and people have argued that 
you know, in a way, as the more human hominins spread around Africa, the tougher it really was for chimps to, to do very much, for example. I was going to say, we've, we've probably held back the the intelligence, the evolution of intelligence <laughs> in dogs and other animals. <laughs> Could you imagine? Just, we just decided, because if you think about it, everything that we've learned is that whenever there was someone that was a threat, we eliminated the threat. So if yeah. there was any species that was becoming even remotely um, a threat to us, because we were already there, we went and wiped them. So we just took care of the competition yeah. in a very... Yes, we're, we're, I think it's true. We're, we're not what you probably want to call an ecologically tolerant species. Um, no. <laughs> ourselves. So, uh, yes. I mean, having said that, of course, some species have done incredibly well out of this, dogs being one of them. Um, yes. And, of course, cattle and so on. There are far more of them than there ever, ever would have been left to them, their own well. devices. <laughs> so, 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 you know, they are, you know, the commensals or the, 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 um, uh, the, the camp followers of humans, uh, have there are many species. So many species have suffered, but, but there are a few that have really look upon us as the, as the honeypot of life. Yes, and, and some who have just got lucky with being uh, well adapted to cities by chance, like pigeons, yes. for instance. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and mosquitoes. Everyone's yeah. favourite species. <laughs> <laughs> Although we're going to try and do our best to to stop them. Uh, as, as, I, I hope so. They anyway. are outsmarting us. Think about it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, we must, go on, Robert. No, I was going to say we we must be a major selective pressure on 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 on, on other animals. So that you know, we, you tend to think of that as somehow artificial. But as far as a as a a bird, it, you know, it's just another form of natural selection. And so the environment's changed, and suddenly there are nice chimney pots you can you can nest in, and so on. So that 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 for them is a natural process. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily mean it is. You know, what we're doing intentionally doesn't will not appear as intentional in the evolutionary record. I suppose it, it depends who's uh, who's who's checking out that evolutionary <laughs> record, you know, millions of years from now. True, <laughs> true, true, absolutely true. Yeah. But that's uh, that's one for the people or otherwise of the future who are doing that research to to, to worry about rather than us. <laughs> Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, the research that you are doing with Turing now, uh, Robert. So uh, what was the motivation behind the uh, Turing projects and what are the questions in human evolution uh, that you wanted to help with? Uh, also, what are some of the examples of the non-genetic data types which now uh, the project is beginning to work with? Okay, um, I'll come at it slightly tangentially but should partly go back to... to you know, your, your um, slightly derogatory remarks about the technological capacity <laughs> of, of your prehistoric ancestors. Um, so th there's a, I mean, you, I, I'm going to caricature it, but there's become, become a sort of um, uh, orthodox view of human evolution that what really drives it is, uh, is, is the social brain. It, it, it's language, it's how we speak, it's, uh, it's our ability to interact with each other socially. And um, and in that process, I think one of the things that's happened is we've, we've downgraded our uh, the significance of technology. I mean, if you go back 
50, 100 years. And I think most anthropologists have just, you know, taken the, the, the you know, man, the toolmaker approach that, you know, we, we, we knocked the rocks together and that gave us more food and so on. And I, I, I've, I've become very interested in that partly because of, as I said at the beginning, I have a strong interest in ecology and I tend to think that, you know, resources and access to resources drives, uh, evolutionary change. And technology is tremendously important in that. Now, the first evidence we have uh, comes from from when uh, some early ancestor, some Australopithecine, probably more than three million years ago, started knocking rocks together in such a way as to take off flakes. And what they do with that is 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 a is a really fundamental change in our ecology because they're creating sharp cutting edges, and that gives them access to you know, either they can do woodwork with it or they can cut up carcasses or they can hunt. Very simple stuff to begin with. Um, but over the next two million years, the, the, that becomes uh, more and more important. And that's critical because it actually means that our evolutionary record is unique in that we don't just have a, a, a fossil record, we have a record of our behavior through these stone tools. And I think they're fundamental. And the so... so Archaeologists have always, you know, dug up stone tools and measured stone tools and analyzed stone tools uh, in order to infer something about human behavior, what they were eating, what they were cutting with, and of course also the the the, the level of thought that has to go into making a stone tool. And I don't know, if, you know, I, I I suggest if you go and find some flint and try and make a stone tool, uh, you'll find it's a lot more difficult than you think. And you think you just bang the rocks together, and sadly, it doesn't work quite that way. Um, and over the course of our evolution, this has become more and more uh, sophisticated, planning depth involved, and so on. So what 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 I became interested in is there is a vast, vast amount of evidence. There's a number, vast numbers of stone tools, the vast numbers of publications of it, uh, and and I wanted to find a way of trying to bring that together, and it's. Analyzing stone tools is, is, is interesting, but it's quite a slow process. And I thought, what could we do to automate this to really up the game? And, and I come back to the genetics because, you know, what, one of the things that genetics has taught us is large samples, you know, with these multiples of, of, of the vast size of the genome. And you can start doing very sophisticated analytical procedures, the whole bio, bioinformatics. And so what I thought was, can we start to Given the size of the archaeological record, can we start to really accumulate big data of this sort? And that really would require uh, a more, um, you know, the advantages of data science and machine learning. So what I, the, the project uh, I, I put into the, to the uh, Alan Turing Institute was to develop such methodologies. And that's what we've been working on um, for the, for the last, uh, Six months or so, um, trying to trying to get this up and running. Now, I can tell you more about the details if you're interested. Well, um, before yeah, before thinking about the methods, do the data sets that you would want to use the methods on uh, already exist? And what kind of data would it be? Would it just be like lots of photographs of the stone tools from across the world? Or exactly. Um, so there are the stone tools themselves. They're scattered in museums all over the place. Uh, there are photographs, but I mean, with digital cameras now, the f numbers of photographs have gone up a lot. But historically, when photography was, you know, 
a roll of 36 films was quite expensive. expensive. There weren't necessarily that many. But what archaeologists developed was a very sophisticated uh, process of drawing them. And there are some of the exquisite line drawings, and you can open any archaeological book of, of deep prehistory and you'll see these, these stone tools. So they're drawn, and they're drawn in, 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 uh, with, with ink, uh, and there are conventions as to how uh, the, the direction of striking and things is all shown. Uh, so we decided we would start our project. If, I mean, since what we want to do is, is, is um, hoover up all this pictorial and photographic in, and, and indeed real data information, but we thought we'll start with the, with the black and white drawings, partly because there's so many of them, and partly because in a way, they, they're, because they're conventions, it's easier for us to, to try and get them to, to, to uh, extract the necessary information. So what we're doing is, uh, is, is, is either asking colleagues to provide, you know, all their black and white drawings, or, or scanning vast numbers of, of, um, of print, printed versions, and uh, uh, the number, the potential number, is enormous. And we're using those t to set up uh, training mechanisms for uh, being able to extract the data we want, um, and, and and up, basically up the game, up the level of quantification that we can get, and the speed with which we can get it. These uh, these drawings, presumably, they're done in in a consistent enough way, and and that uh, some kind of machine learning system could like learn attributes of of the tools based on the drawing. But exactly. um, what it, what is it that you're trying to uh, find out from uh, from these drawings? Okay, so uh, I mean, some of it is just getting metrical information. So you know, there's the size and the shape, um, which which. Uh, you know, we can do with calipers, but obviously, if you, you know, once this thing becomes a, a, an image in a, in, in a computer, it allows us to take an almost infinite number of measurements, so we can increase that. And size and shape tells us a lot about traditions, particularly different traditions of, of how they're, who, who's making it, the function of them. Uh, when you, now, this is interesting. Is it, how, how, how are you getting from the 2D drawing to uh, something that can be measured? Or you, but you're measuring, okay, so, so uh, ultimately we will have to, you know, start to try and work with the original things because they are 3D or 3D scans. And there's a lot of people now scanning in them. Um, but scanning is quite a slow, slow process. Um, so again, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to maximize the amount of data. Uh, we're, we're working uh, on two dimensions. And we're actually working on three dimensions because most people, when they're doing the drawing, they draw one side, draw the other side, uh, and then they, they give you a side view and often a top view. So, you know, we are working out ways of linking those those together. Um, so when you, okay, when you, when you make a stone tool, you start with a core, basically a, a big lump of rock. Uh, you have to find a point on it which has the right angle, and you... You use a hammer, a stone hammer, off comes a flake. And then you repeat this until the core is, is, is finished. Now that means that each flake that comes off has, has a ventral side and also a dorsal side, okay, front and a back. So the, the, the front side, the belly side, is the one that was attached to the core. And it's smooth, obviously it would be. But the other side, is covered in scars, 
so different planes, different surfaces, for all the other flakes that have gone off before it. And the pattern of scarring is indicative of the way the stone tool was produced. So if all the scars are going in the same direction and they're all beautifully parallel, you know someone's just gone bang, bang, bang in a row. If, on the other hand, all the scars go round in a kind of circle, you've got a different way of manufacturing. Now, archaeologists worked this out a long time ago, but what we're trying to do is to automate the, the process and to make it a bit more sophisticated as to how we get that information. And then I can look at it and look at the vast numbers of data and say, well, these guys are doing it this way, and these other people are doing it this other way. This one involves 15 steps, this one involves three steps, and, and make the inferences in that way. So that's the, the principle we're, we're going for. As I said, for us, this is a, the first steps. And in an ideal world, you know, we'd have some highly automated process of scanning, 3D scanning thousands of artifacts in and, and moving them into, in, in, into this system. But at this stage, we are trying to retrieve historically uh, a vast amount of data that is lost in, in print. It definitely sounds like a classic um, machine learning solvable problem in that you've got a lot of unlabeled things that you want to classify into. It's either this type of stone tool or this other type of stone tool. You know how to do it, but you don't want to have to manually do it yourself. And it's impossible to write down any kind of rules-based program where you could say, well, if it has this shape of dent, then it's in this class or, uh, of tool or another tool. You've got to, you know, get a machine learning algorithm to to learn based on the images themselves um, because it's too hard to explain. Um, in fact, you can't explain. I would imagine the archaeologists themselves can just, you know, they know it when they see it. Hmm. I mean, there's a bit too much of the they know it when they see it because, of course, <laughs> <laughs> and it's true, they do. I mean, it, you know, there, there are people who, who can look at a stone tool and tell you everything about it instantly, uh, but it's a verbal record. And, you know, I mean, supposing I, I want to start applying, uh, I want to start linking the, that rich stone tool record to the rich genetic record. And on the one hand, you've got geneticists who are doing these incredibly sophisticated bioinformatic models. And on the other hand, the archaeologists and the, the stone tools are saying, well, you know, I think this was made by a left-handed, you know, person using this technique. What we need to do is to, is to have a level of, a level of sophistication in our analysis that will allow us to start to really integrate, for example, genetic information and, and in this case, lithics. I mean, be, you know, at one stage, of course, I had ambitions to do this with all the fossils as well, and it'd be very nice to do so, but, uh, and it will come. So in the end, you know, the, the impact of data science on, on paleoanthropology will be enormous because we'll, we'll start having really good quantitative records and that allows us to build simulation models of, of what to expect and then compare that with the, you know, what we actually see in the record. Um, Can I ask so a quick I, question, which is, is lithics just the jargon for um, stone, stone tools? Absolutely. Right, yes, okay, got it. <laughs> uh, sorry, yes, it's a, it's a, I tried to avoid jargon, but I always forget that one. Yeah, lithics is just you know, the lithosphere, the, the rock. Um, world and so lithics are lithics are stone tools. Sounds more scientific. What so, so? What are the different kinds of stone tools which you're looking at? And I guess if this uh, if these methods prove useful, 
Um, what kind of questions, perhaps in combination with the genetics, as you mentioned, will you be able to answer um, that you can't at the moment without um, having this large-scale uh, classification of stone tools, which is impossible using the human eye? Yes. I mean, it's a terrible question to ask somebody on a radio podcast. <laughs> to, to, <laughs> because, because normally you could, I could pick up some stone tools well, and say, well, you know, yeah, look yeah. at this. I mean, in very simple terms, I mean, it, 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 the earliest technologies are, are very simple. And literally, the, the, the oldest one, which is called the Mequian, which is over three million years, uh, they, they, would, they would take very large cobbles, lift them up and, pre- and bring them down on an anvil and sort of hope a big flake cake comes off. Uh, by two million years ago, a bit more, two and a half million years ago, they're doing it rather differently, where they will have a hammerstone in one hand and the core in the other, and then they've got the manipulation to turn the core, angle things, and they're still doing much the same thing, which is taking off flakes, but they're, they're, they're rather smaller and more controlled, producing much better cutting edges, and also leaving behind a core that can become a bit of a, of a chopper itself, so you can use it to, to, to chop uh, into into carcasses and so on. And then then from there things become more sophisticated. I think they learn to take off big flakes. And then the one you've probably heard of are hand axes. Um, and these are these rather beautiful, often pear shaped objects where they're now just they're now shaping the tools, okay, and shaping them symmetrically, getting them nice and, and, and regular. And that, so that, that's the sort of next stage and we can count the number of scars and we can look at the symmetry and we can measure all these things to pick up that pattern. And then from then on, it becomes a bit of a rush. By rush, I mean things change over hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and it's speeding up. It's speeding up. It gets faster still. Uh, uh, where I mean, the critical thing is they lose interest in really big, chunky stone tools and they want to make lots of small flakes. And they develop techniques and this is this is the really cool bit, as far as I'm concerned, where they they start to shape the core to prepare it so that they can knock off flakes of a regular shape. So it's called this is literally called prepare core technique. Uh, and in a way, think about it because what they're now doing is they have a they're planning ahead of time and preparing it. So it's got a, it involves a much deeper level of, of cognitive planning. And that, that's something that's pretty close to the base of, of Homo sapiens. It goes back a bit further than that. And after that, it's really a question of just getting more efficient, more sophisticated, getting more regular shapes. They start producing blades. And then, and then in a way that you might think parallels the computer world, it all then becomes very, very small. The microlithics, uh, sort of miniaturization of the process, making lots of little uh, flakes, and then you make composite tools out of it. That is the fastest ex- description of the entire Paleolithic record ever. <laughs> but <laughs> but that's what you're doing. So what am I trying to tell? Is I'm trying to tell, for example, with that planning depth, can we measure uh, the the degree, the amount of preparation that is going in? Uh, if we go back a bit, can we look at, for example, the uh, the extent to which there is symmetry? In, in the system. Now, these are all things we can do, but if we could automate it and make it consistent across across the globe, rather than having local traditions and local ways of doing it, then we will, I think, we'll seriously improve the information potential, the scientific potential of this material. I, I, I guess what I'm imagining is that it's um, 
and I don't want to like try to oversimplify this, but I'm just just to wrap my own head around it that it's it's variations on questions about um, you know how was this used or how was this made um, with regard to any particular tool, um, and I I guess from my modern perspective, I, I you know I would think well you know is this a knife is it a hunting spear is it <laughs> something but I, I I'm sure that the enormous diversity of considering the length stretch of time you're talking about and the whole world um it's going to be a lot more complex than than just those categories uh a bit more but um but probably not that much more i mean you're absolutely right i mean the the, the questions are very basic i mean on the one hand what were they used for you know and i said earlier on you know i think if resources drive um drive evolution then one of the functions of these stone tools is, is to acquire resources. And I, I mean, I think this, this is, a, if you say, what does technology do? And I think I probably include all technology here. It, it really just does two things. It either gives you access to something you would not otherwise get access to. Uh, so a stone tool might give you access to a carcass, you know, you cut into, you know, deep skin and cut the meat out. Or it, or it saves you time that you could do something you could do otherwise, but it does it much faster. So, I mean, we could, you know, we could have this conversation, you know, running backwards and forwards. I don't know if you're in London, but, you know, between London and Cambridge, and we could have this conversation. But with technology, we can do it much, much faster, i.e. instantaneously. So that technology does those, those two things, and probably that's, it, it is that that's driving this pattern. So the function in those terms is important. Second thing then is that that uh, is that technology is of course not just you know a, a, a lonely old man sitting in his shed producing tools. It's a social process, and we pass on that information. We can look at the similarities. Why why do two people make the stu- the stone tools look the same? Well, it could be because they. they that's the only way to make it, but because the, it could be because they watched their mother or father or brother or something making them, and so it, it can tell us about cultural processes. And the efficiency of our cultural evolution has, has evolved over time. So we can infer how culture has become an important process as well. And, <clears throat> and then the third thing, which is linked into that, is, um, is what it can tell us about cognition. You know, as the brain gets larger, okay, the brain gets larger. But what do we do with it? Can we find ways of quantifying the impact of that? Uh, and Bia talked earlier about language and, and how important is language. So do you, you know, is, do you need language to make stone tools? Or it could be that once you've got stone tools, language develops because the cognition required for making stone tools, remember the planning, is similar to the sort of things we need to plan conversations. So those are the questions we want to ask. I mean, in a sense, we want it as a, as a sort of general um, framework for asking major evolutionary questions. I, I was going to say that even just having the data makes, even if you don't have a lot of specific questions right now, having the data prepared to be analysed is already incredibly uh, useful uh, for for any questions that show up in the future. Um, although now I'm, I'm I'm a bit fixed on the fact that 
all of this technology that we use can be reduced to two things. And I'm like, yes, that is true. My phone is either to access things that I don't know or to make it faster. <laughs> uh, yes, it, 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 it's, it's, yeah, it's a simple world, really. Um, and no, I think that uh, it is that. And, and again, I come back to genetics. I mean, I, you know, as I said, I, genetics came as a, as a, as a, um, a shock later in my life career as it were and I've, and I've learned and I and I work with geneticists and I work with genetic data and so on now and, and, and sort of love it um, but uh, you know the other thing that geneticists have taught us is 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 firstly the importance of open data so you know that these genomes are out there you know they're when they publish them now the genomes are out there and they can build on each other's knowledge Trouble with archaeology was not necessarily the fault of the archaeologists. Is it, it remains too too much of it never gets published. Too much of it, it remains locked in, in in little local things. So we don't have these big, really big databases. I mean, I mean this is this is you know selling data to the Turing Institute is not a, <laughs> it's probably not a hard sell. But that that process uh, of, of, of opening up our data and, and systematizing it means that future generations come along and come along and, and use do more with it, develop better analytical methods. So that, that you're absolutely right. That's exactly you know what what underlies it. So I think, and certainly in the in the framework of, of the project, we're not going to solve all these problems, but it's a step along the way to that sort of more open science, more uh, global science uh, approach. Chipping a bit at the problem, right? <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Chipping away at the rocks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. Um, yeah, I, I think um, just as B was saying earlier, that just having the, the data out there and the tools available sparks new ideas for you know questions that could be answered. Um, and I've just had one, which is, you know, <laughs> what could, you know if you presumably if these tools obviously do span a large uh, section of time and you can see that they get more complicated over time um, you know can that you know technology building on technology um, teach us something about ge perhaps more generic rules about how innovation in technology occurs or how humans innovate on previous technology um, it's a rough idea but I'm just putting it out there <laughs> no I think I, I think it is I think in a way, stone tools are fun. I mean, they're nice to make and they're nice to look at. Um, but that has to be the reason for doing this, is to understand something about processes of innovation, uh, the relationship between cognition, language, technology. These are all questions that are, that are deep in our own society. Uh, or even questions of who's making the tools, you know. Who, is this something everybody does and it's a nice egalitarian system or is there, you know, the Napa, you know, who's using it to, you know, acquire status? So those questions are, are, are fundamental and I think it, we, we should be doing it. I think the, the irony is that, that of course, what, what the bulk of that record, I'd say the bulk of it I'm talking about, the period from over three million years down to the last hundred thousand years, is going to it's probably going to tell us that, that it was really a very different world. And, and, and put, it, put it another way around. I told you about these, these hand axes, these pear drop hand axes. Now, they, you can argue about it, but optimists would say these things didn't change for 
about a million and a half years. Uh, I, I put it slightly differently. I think they didn't change for the last, you know, they'd go into two phases. But even if they didn't change for hundreds of thousands of years, could you imagine any technology where a human, is, human society is happy to make the same technology for hundreds of thousands of years, for generation after generation after generation without changing it. And most, and, and I mean, again, it's an interesting thing to think about technology today, is we either want new, new things because they improve our lives, or, you know, we want better vacuum cleaners or better cars because they improve our lives or because they give us status, or we want, we, we like the challenge of inventing them. And, Half a million years ago, our ancestors didn't look like that at all. So then the question is, at what point does this greater sense of in innovation come in? Uh, why? You know, what was stopping it before? What was what suddenly made it advantageous? What are the costs of high rates of innovation? Um, these, I mean, so so you know, what you're asking is is actually a fundamental question, which. You know, once one steps back from the, the niceties of stone tools, are exactly the questions we need to ask about technology in general and use this very long evolutionary record uh, to try and give us different insights than we get if we just go and, you know, look at Apple and, and think that's, that's what technology is all about. <laughs> well, I was going to say maybe, maybe we can trace a line all the way from the stone tools to the computer slash smartphone um but it is uh um an exponential curve in the in the um technology maybe the itself. next smartphones are going to be pear-shaped <laughs> why not yes um, i was that is actually a very um a very interesting point uh which is why what caused the change from being so traditionalist and so being which is still exists today there's a lot of societies where doing as the the ancestors have done is the correct way of doing things and what was it that actually made you know the rebellious teenager decide that they want to try make it a different um tool to make it more efficient um that's actually yeah. quite an interesting there's so, many, there's so many questions inside that question. Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, firstly, I think I think we have to be careful. I mean, what I'm talking about is change, no, no observable change over hundreds of thousands of years. Even, you know, societies that appear to be relatively technologically stagnant uh, have have changed, and I think you, we wouldn't find any societies today that have complete absence of of any technological of change. Um, but the rate is very different. Uh, and I, I think it's probably not different. I, mean, I think it's two two things. One is my answer to everything, of course, is it depends on the ecological conditions, <laughs> costs and benefits of of, of change, and, and so on. And those clearly shift uh, quite quite considerably. But I also would think that in any community you look at, you will have individuals who are, you know, your, your stroppy teenager who wants to change everything. And you're a very conservative person. This is good enough for my father. It's good enough for my grandfather. It's going to be good enough for you as well. Um, and, and in a way, there's always going to be a tension between us. Uh, probably that's quite adaptive because if the whole world was made up of innovative teenagers, uh, well, nothing would happen for a start, but, um, 
it's also the case that, 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 that you need that tension. Because if the whole world was made up of, of, of conservative grouches who are not going to change anything, nothing will happen. If, if the rate of change is too high, then you, know, you will not have stable systems. So somehow the tension actually within the society, within individuals, whether that's a small tribal group or whether it's our own communities, is likely to be what what will kind of help shape what is a good innovation and what is not a good innovation. Um, because, let's face it, an awful lot of innovations are absolutely terrible things. <laughs> <laughs> And, and there's already things that have been perfected so long. Like, we're not going to make a better wheel. It has been <laughs> a wheel exactly as it is for so... We changed the material, but we're not making it more round, right? Yeah. So. yeah. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, uh, you're gonna make, you can change the efficiency of it, but you can't change the fundamental design yeah. um, of, of, the, of, of it. Um, and you can... I, mean, I don't know enough about it. You're probably much more familiar with modern technologies than I am, but you know, one gets the feeling that you know, some things are just slowing down. I, you know, I, one, one looks at each new Apple phone or Google phone or you know, Android phone, whatever coming out, and the the, in, the incremental changes, uh, or no, put it the other way around, the changes become more and more incremental. So it's no longer you know, wow. Well, that's completely different <laughs> from anything I say. It's, it's gosh, it's got a you know a few more pixels in its in its camera. Well, there definitely seem to be times in which, like, a particular innovation sparks a lot of other innovations. And I suppose the innovation of everyone having internet access obviously sparks in the, you know, mid-noughties, all of this, um, like, you know, technological innovation on that sense. And now it's being, well, I think it, I think it is continuing, but you're right, it's certainly a more, Progressive rather than revolutionary at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think uh, there's, a, there's a lot of people called what's technology by a man called Arthur, and he makes a distinction, and others have done too, between uh, as it were, what what are real, genuine innovations, something that changes the game. So the, your invention of the wheel would be a clear one that's radically different from anything else. I mean, you can't start with something square and say, okay, I'll just change it a bit to get rounder. It is a radically new one. And, I don't know, putting spokes in it or smoothing the bottom, which would be modifications. So, again, I think thinking about how to scale that sort of uh, contrast uh, and thinking about what are the factors that shape when you get these big jumps and what are the factors that then constrain you to just tinkering around with current technologies. Um would, would be you know a, a major question um, because I think that would help us to understand some of the issues that come out of you know why technologies you know can, can, can get stuck for example yes I, I, I think that is a fascinating question for which many people will be pondering but hopefully having new data and new methods in uh, in order to to address it that that question of of um, yeah, why were certain tools used for almost unchanged for tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years? And then why were there other periods where things changed so much more rapidly? Um, so it's going to be fascinating to see if there are any big uh, answers that come out of that um, question uh, anytime soon. Uh, <laughs> but it certainly seems that there might well be. Um, 
I'm going to start to wrap up now. And this is a, I'm going to ask you a sort of bonus question I had, which is quite related to what I was just saying, actually. Um, given, um, yeah, what, what could, uh, be uncovered in the next 10 years, um, based on these methods, um, you know, what, what going back to like the previous 10 years, what has been the like most surprising results to come out of the study of human evolution? Uh, that you really haven't thought would happen, but because of new technology, um, was uncovered. Besides genetics being relevant, oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to yeah, we have got yeah. already. I mean, I think so. Okay, I mean, I'll give you. I mean, the genetics is the obvious answer. I mean, yeah. you know, it's ten, ten, it's the last ten or 50, ten years or so. The whole you know admixture game uh, has has well, been revolutionary. Well, what's meant by admixture? In other words, the, the, the evidence of interbreeding between Neanderthals and modern humans. Right, and so okay, on. So, yeah. But if, you, if, you, if you're not going to let me to talk about that, I'll give you <laughs> an, uh, another one, which is, is you know, because it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a good interesting question how much of our science, you know, develops because somebody's, you know, got a new machine that goes ping uh, louder than anybody else's. And, and the other one, of course, is scanning technology. So if you think, you know, we've had 150 years or so of, of digging up bones and fossils and, and measuring them and observing them. But in the last 10 or 15, it's longer than that, but the real impact's been in the last 10 or 15 years where you can use uh, CT scans, you can use MRIs, you can use um, uh, micro-CTs, uh, all these techniques that are available. So we can actually look inside the fossils um, and see structures and see details of morphology uh, which were completely unobservable before so you learn you know it's possible to learn there's a, there's a group in, in kent who did a fabulous work on um uh looking at the, the enamel dentine junction in in teeth uh and finding that, that when you look at them in detail they have a phylogenetic signal in other words they kind of have a, a little label saying i belong to this species uh which we would never have got and then you know colleagues here in Cambridge is look, looking, for example, using scanning to actually begin to see the relationship between all the little things that go on in the ins, inner surface of the, of the skull and how that relates to the brain, the brain size and the convolutions of brains. None of that would have been possible without uh, this improvement in, in, in scanning, 3D scanning technology. So I'd say that that would be my other example if you're not going to let me talk about genetics um, <laughs> <laughs> that's had a really big impact absolutely yeah well i guess yeah the it yeah like you said it's 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 interesting to think well does the technology that we talk about as being oh really big and exciting and new and shiny um precipitate new discoveries but certainly with the example of genetics um it does seem to be that we've learned a hell of a lot um, about, um, yeah, the, the different patterns in migration and so on and, and mixture. And then, yeah, the other example you've given on the um, scanning technology as well. I think genetics changed all life, um, almost for, for all, almost all. You mean our, our understanding yeah. of the relatedness of all life? Is that what yeah. you mean? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think it's, I think genetics is, is, is important. Can I, however, let me just have a quick fight back. Um, Go ahead. Uh, uh, none of this is possible without people going out and doing field work and finding fossils. Yes. And, you know, and that, but, you know, okay, there are, there are technologies now that are better 
for doing that, you know, we can use GPSs to find where we are and you know, there's LADAR and so on. But without fossils, none of this is possible. So, uh, you know, people who walk the landscapes in, in Africa or wherever or dig up caves, uh, still that there would be no ancient DNA without people doing that. So no matter how good the genetics becomes or the scanning technology, uh, the core of the subject remains finding new things. And, and you know, the papers, every time you find something new, everyone gets terribly excited. Well, that's a fantastic note to end on. I think, you know, the, the, the reality is that even if you're a data scientist, um, you can still go and do field work and that and that matters <laughs> yes yeah, exactly basically get out of the house <laughs> <laughs> it's good for you too absolutely and it's exciting and fun absolutely um robert before we let you go uh where can people find out more about this work or your work in general um do you have uh, a website or social media people can follow uh I'm afraid I'm not a social media person, so I, I don't have. <laughs> um, but there's a, I mean, there's a website on the Turing Institute Paleoanalytics, which also has links to uh, my other university website and, and things like academia.edu, which will have all the, the publications and the, and the and, and the projects. So um, that's the best. That's the best uh, access. So it's, it's called Paleo. The project's called Paleoanalytics, and. Uh, in, find it on the Turing website yeah it's a word that in doing the research for this episode I, I had to be very careful to spell correctly uh, <laughs> paleoanalytics <laughs> all right uh, Robert thank you very much for coming on the podcast thank you so much that's a pleasure pleasure if you have an interesting topic you'd like featured on the show, a guest recommendation or a burning question, email podcast at cheering.ac.uk. The Turing Podcast is hosted by Ed Cowstrey, B. Costa Gomez and Joe Dungate and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute. Music for the podcast was provided by Jam and Sun. You can check out his latest releases at jamandsun.bandcamp.com.